Good morning. Um, it's my great joy to welcome you today. My name is Josh Houston. I'm the lead pastor here at City Reach LA. Um, before we jump in, I I wanted to address the the Parkland shooting from this week. Um, I have thoughts on government. I have thoughts on gun laws. I have thoughts on our violence epidemic. Um, but in light of what's becoming a pattern of tragedy in our country, I want to call us back to the power of prayer. Um, as Christians, the greatest work that we do is prayer. And it's not to say that we shouldn't do anything. It's not to say that we shouldn't change anything because a lot has to be done. A lot must be changed. But ultimately, because of sin, because of humanity's brokenness, we're going to continue to have broken systems. It's just the reality. And our only hope is the mercy of Christ. Our only hope is God saving us from ourselves. Um, so I believe the church's first responsibility is to join together in solidarity with the church and to ask for God's redemptive power over our lives and over our brokenness. Uh, this week, the Gospel Coalition put out a prayer of lament in response to the shooting. And what I want to do this morning is, is read it with you guys. So I want to ask that you join with me, that you stand with me, um, and that you join your hearts with me and hopefully millions of other Christians this morning lifting up our brothers and sisters to Jesus. Heavenly Father, this week in Broward County, Florida, we witnessed yet another day of terror making darkness and evil doing madness. How long, O oh Lord, how long before you cut off every expression of evil? How long before the wicked will be no more? It's hard not to fret, Father. It's hard not to, fear, to feel fearful and angry when public high schools become the venue for mass murders. We offer our prayers as your weary children longing for the day when your glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, the day when perfect peace will replace systemic darkness, when the wolf and the lamb will live together, when guns and knives will become tools for agriculture and harvest. Until then, Father, make us warriors of peace and agents of hope. Replace our frets and our fears with faith and trust, with patience and courage. Our labors in the Lord are never in vain. We dare not withdraw. We, we must not retreat. The gospel of the kingdom will prevail. Jesus defeated evil on the cross, and he will eradicate evil at his return. That day cannot get here so, too soon, O oh God. So grant us wisdom and grace to love mercy, to do justice, to walk humbly with you wherever you've placed us. We pray for the scores of families and friends directly affected by this tragedy. And we pray for the healthcare workers and the counselors and the pastors and the neighbors, those who will offer a redemptive presence and care. Grant them your compassion and your strength, O oh God. We ask this all in the triumphant and graceful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, thanks. You can sit down. I encourage you to not to just say a prayer, but to be praying, to be prayers about this. Jesus is our hope here. If you aren't aware, we started our all-church fast on Wednesday. We're joining together during Lent um, to know God, to seek God, to be passionately pursuing God, to be known by him. I encourage you to join us if you haven't already. Um, if you want to talk with me about how to do this, I'd love to speak with you about it, just in choosing something from which to fast and pursuing God over this period before Easter, um, seeking to know him and be known by him. For the month of February, I've been preaching through our core values. At City Reach LA, we have four core cultural principles. They're guiding principles that define what we believe in. They define how we behave in community. They're the way of Jesus, come as you are, church as family, and local and global mission. 
Um, two weeks ago, I spoke about the way of, the, of Jesus, which is the way of the cross. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. And that Jesus not only asks that we receive the work that he did for us on the cross, but that he asks us as followers of him to take up our cross as we follow him. Uh, last week, I spoke on coming as you are, that everyone is welcome here, but that, that must not be permission giving to live in sin. So while we um, come as we are, we must not stay as we are. Following Jesus calls us to change too. If you didn't get a chance to hear the last two messages, I encourage you to go back, listen on our podcast or our Facebook Live um, catch up this week because these are important for us. These aren't just um, themes that we like to throw in the air. These are, these are the lifeblood of our, of our church and ministry here. And today, I'm continuing our series, um, and I'll be preaching on church as family. And uh, here's how I want to frame the conversation. Family is the dominant metaphor for the church in Scripture. Yes, followers of Christ are called his bride. They're called uh, members of his body. They're called branches that they, are, that they are meant to abide in him. But the principal symbol to explain who we are is we're family. We're beloved kids of a compassionate heavenly father. Therefore, here, we choose to do church as family. However, the global church, the church, has been called the family of God. By God, it's been called his family. So we actually don't even really have a choice in being a family. We are a family. The choice we are given is whether or not our family is going to unintentionally hurt people. The choice we have is whether we're going to send people to therapy because of our family's dysfunction and our family dynamics, or if people are going to be drawn to our family because of how life-giving it is. So here's what I want to unpack today. We are a family, but what kind of family do we want to be? We are a family. God has called us that, but what kind of family do we want to be? If you've been around church for any period of time, even a short period of time here, you know that we like to talk about church as family. We love to say it. And for some of you, the notion of family may bring with it comfort or nostalgia. You know, like my mom is my best friend or my siblings and I, we go on a vacation every year together. But for many of you, the word family may cause the hairs on your neck to stand up. Oh, church is family, huh? So you abuse each other and you talk crap about each other and you fight to get ahead of each other because that's what family is for me. So I realize I'm not naive enough to think that everybody had an enjoyable family of origin experience. I realize even bringing up the term family, it's going to crash up against your paradigm, your framework, your experience of family. The reality is I say family and everybody in here interprets it different. That's just the case. It's going to be the case. So today, I'm not going to be overly ambitious and try to redefine the, the word family and, and attempt to funnel it into some utopian idea for all of us. My plan today is to show you a little of what the Bible does with family and then what the Bible does with church as family. And I want to give some characteristics of what healthy families do and don't do in life, life together. You ready? It's going to be good. Need to do a little shake to wake. Sometimes I do that just to wake up a little bit. This week, I was thinking about how my daughter approaches life. My three-year-old sweet daughter, Aria, she's a beautiful soul. She's intelligent. She's creative. She's joyful. She's compassionate at times, but she's pretty narcissistic. She doesn't mind interrupting something important if she wants a snack. She doesn't mind playing loud if people are sleeping. She doesn't mind waking me up to watch her go potty. 
Like, are you kidding? For real? You know, like, Daddy, wake up, please, please. Okay, what is it? Watch me poop. For real? (laughs) She thinks about what she's going to eat. She thinks about her enjoyment. She thinks about her comfort. And sure, she has moments of care for others, moments of thinking beyond herself, but largely, she's about her. And it should be expected, right? She's three. She's a toddler. But when she gets older, she's going to have to learn how to think beyond her own life to take into consideration the feelings and the thoughts and the experiences of other people, right? Arya is going to need to learn into a new way of life that helps make other things beautiful, not just her life comfortable. You with me? Arya reminds me a lot of America. Intelligent, creative, joyful, compassionate at times, but pretty narcissistic. She thinks about what she's going to get to eat. She thinks about her enjoyment. She thinks about her comfort. Sure, she has moments of care for others, moments of thinking beyond herself, but largely she's all about her. For those of us who've lived in America for a good chunk of our lives, we have been indoctrinated in the radical individualism of the West. That the immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health and growth of the group to which we belong. We've been socialized to believe that my dreams, that my goals, that my fulfillment matters most. And this approach to life affects how we do everything. It affects how we do education. It affects how we do entertainment. It affects our approach to gun laws. It affects the way we take care of the earth. And what happens is this mindset produces personal values in us, which produce decisions from us, which creates systems that break people and damage people and hurt people. And the world in which we find ourselves currently is one where a bunch of us care far more about the protection of our rights and our luxuries than we do the well-being of our group and the individuals in our group. Now, please hear, what I'm not suggesting is that we become some enmeshed cult or a socialist commune. That'd be fun, sure, for maybe a week, right? (laughs) Yes, there are strengths to an individualist society. There are strengths to a capitalist society. However, in the world, this is a relatively new approach to life. In the history of humanity, America is a toddler. And she's going to need to learn into a new way of life that helps make other things beautiful, not just her life more comfortable. Because by contrast, nearly all other societies throughout history have been and continue to be collectivist in their approach to life. The majority of people who have ever lived on this planet have simply assumed that the enjoyment of the individual takes a backseat to the well-being of the group, whether that's a village or family or religious community. And here's what's counterintuitive for us. These people have been socialized, that has been socialized into this worldview, the strong group worldview. They're convinced that this approach to life is in their best interest. Fascinating. What we've been trained in is establishing our individual goals and then using groups and using institutions to help us get there. And we see nothing of this in Scripture. In fact, when we bring our radical individualism to Scripture, it collides with fireworks. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the term personal savior appears nowhere in Scripture. Our extreme emphasis on a personal relationship with God, it's an American construction. It's not a biblical one. 
Or look at a marriage, look at marriage in America or the dysfunction that is marriage in America. Many jump into marriage to begin this new life, to start something new, to start something fresh in their own. But in scripture, marriage was about the continuation of what your family had been doing for generations and building for generations. You didn't start anything. You joined into a long story that was already being told. And if you look real close, you notice that marriage was not the highest priority relationship in scripture. The closest bond in Mediterranean society was blood. It was father, it was mother, it was sister, it was brother. Blood always ran deeper than romantic love, which meant that the most treacherous act of disloyalty that you could do was, was abuse blood, was to cut off blood, was to betray your blood. Think of the first significant sin recorded after the fall. It's not the breakup of a marriage. It's not the murder of a spouse. It's the murder of a brother. And to Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? The ancient world would have responded loudly, yes. <laughs> yes, Cain, you are your brother's keeper. This is the biblical context. Strong group culture. The individual existed in the tribe to better the tribe. Your blood, your tribe is who you are. And then Jesus comes along. Whew, this guy. Saying some pretty countercultural things, even offensive things. He tells this one guy, hey, follow me. And the guy says, can I go bury my father? He says, let the, let the dead bury their own dead. Whew. Others, Jesus is talking to, and he says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. A man's enemies will become the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or their mother or their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Another time, he's sitting around with people, and they say, hey, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And he says, who are my mother and brothers? Then he looks at them and says, this, here, here are my mother and brothers and sisters. Whoever does God's will is my mother and brother and sisters. This is scandalous talk. In this time, primary loyalty went to your blood family. That was it. And then Jesus comes along and he's seriously challenging his disciples. And it's not to necessarily to sever the relationships with blood, but to reorder, re reorder the priority of loyalty. In order to join this new surrogate family that he's putting together, God's family, this is what this is all about. This now becomes highest priority. He's saying your blood family exists to serve the designs of the family of God, not vice versa. And when there's conflict between your blood family and God's family, faith family takes precedence. No wonder Jesus, as his ministry progresses, people start abandoning him. No wonder. This guy sounds like a loon. You can't just reorder cultural paradigms, Jesus. You can't, you can't just come in and re-change everything like that. We've been doing stuff for a long time. You can't just change everything up on us. He's taking their current family worldview and he's flipping it on its head. He's not throwing it out. He's turning it inside out. And they're not sure what to do with this. And then the New Testament writers come along and they just throw fuel on the fire. And here's why I think this message is relevant to us. For many Christians in America, the priorities list goes like this. God, family, church, others right? Maybe you even heard that taught in, in churches. But Jesus and the other New Testament writers paint it like this. God's family, my family, others. Commitment to God 
is commitment to his group. It's the same thing. When people choose to follow Jesus, they get a new father and a new set of siblings. The dad comes with his kids. It's part of the deal here. And those two relationships are inseparable. The father comes with his kids. Race doesn't separate siblings in God's eternal family. Socioeconomic status does not separate siblings in God's eternal family. Political affiliation doesn't separate siblings. If you put your faith in Jesus, you're now part of the family of God. You've been adopted by our heavenly father into his family, and now you're heirs to his throne. This is the power of the church. The church, it's not a religious institution. It's not a nonprofit organization. It's not a business with morals. It's a family. And our fixation on the individual spirituality in America, it's an incomplete picture of the Christian life. It's an inadequate picture of the Christian life. Because spiritual formation, it happens in community. The formation of your soul, it happens in community. There's moments where we do stuff on our own, but, but largely the formation of our souls happens together. If you want to get real simple, it's all in the pronouns. Think of the Lord's Prayer. How many I's, me's, and my's are in, are in there? Zero. It's all we, our, us language. Or look at Paul. He wrote much of the New Testament, and he used the expression our Lord 53 times, and he used the, the term my Lord one time. This is us. And Americans aren't great at this. We are I people. We are my people. We are me people. And then we bring it into our church experience. Instead of living our, instead of actually living our lives together with people, we put the, almost the entire weight of our learning and our growing and our maturing in Christ on a Sunday gathering. Now, of course, this time is important. Of course. But this is not meant to be the sole developer of your spiritual formation. It's not intended for that. It's not meant to carry all the responsibility, all the weight for building a healthy church. No matter how great the preaching is, no matter how good the music is, this is not what this is for. And no healthy family operates like this. Where all the growing, where all the learning, where all the becoming happens together in one 75-minute moment a week. That's not reality. And Jesus didn't lead that way either. So for us here, church as family is not just a mere statement we throw up against the wall. It's our way of pushing back against the the destructive tendency to silo. It's our way of pushing back against the inclination to alienate ourselves from the community that we so desperately need, especially in L.A., right? As inconvenient as it may be, we aim for church as family. Not church as a good show, not church as a moral code book, not church as a networking tool for my career, church as family. Again, what do we mean by, what do we mean by family though, right? What makes a healthy family and, and not an enmeshed, dysfunctional group of people? I did a little research this week um, on just like the nature of healthy families. What makes healthy families? And I found some features classic a healthy life-giving family. So I'd like to share five characteristics of healthy families. Obviously not an exhaustive list, um, but families where these qualities are exhibited and present, they're very likely healthy groups. So I think these are things that we can shoot for as a church family, but you might as well take some notes and try them in your own family because it's going to be healthy for you too. So first one is healthy families spend time together. Healthy families believe that time together must have sufficient 
quality and quantity. Sure, family time can be hard to come by, again, especially in L.A., demanding schedules, school activities, traffic in the city, honk, honk. Still, healthy families don't just try to find time for each other. They make time in their schedules for each other, no matter how busy they think that they are. They know that spending time together creates intimacy, which strengthens the family bonds with each other. And this is why Sunday gatherings are important for us. Not because you need to sing worship songs in this room. Not because you need to hear a sermon in this room. Not because you need to take communion in this room. You could do all of those this week with the help of iTunes, right? Except for maybe communion piece. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, they're, maybe they're coming out with something like that. Sunday gatherings are crucial because we're here together. Because we're doing all this together. And this is why community groups are important to us. Candidly, spending once a week together is hardly being in each other's lives. And just so you guys know, the average is probably, for our church, people show up about twice a month on Sunday mornings. So a lot of people are actually missing each other. So just showing up twice a month on a Sunday, and I'm not shaming. This is not shaming. What I'm saying is showing up twice a month or three times a month, and if you're awesome, four times a month here, it's hard to live in each other's lives, to actually be in each other's lives in this 75-minute gathering. This is what community groups are for, is to actually be in each other's lives. Community groups get us in. They talk about lives. We pray for each other. We support each other in ways that Sunday gatherings can't permit because the group is larger. When you have two or three or four or five people talking about their lives together, the dynamics of that are so different than here, and they're both needed. They're both needed. So healthy families spend time together because they know that time together is not just enjoyable, but it's crucial for their survival. Another one is healthy families come together when they face challenges. Healthy families come together when they face challenges. Every family encounters challenges. Every family faces disagreement. What sets healthy families apart is that they rally together during these times. They don't give up on each other. When circumstances get uncomfortable or when family members disagree with each other, when they let each other down, which will happen in community, we're going to let each other down. In family, we're going to hurt each other. We're broken. That's why people, a lot of people run from community because I just don't want to get hurt. I want to stay, stay far enough that I don't get touched so I can't get hurt. When, when we let each other down, when healthy families let each other down, when they face brokenness, they tap into this unwavering dedication to each other. Rather than let hard times destroy them, strong families come together to work through difficulties. And the same dynamic works is, and it's true of, in church life. Healthy families, they, they, the church families, they turn inward during times of crisis. If you've been around church life for long enough, you know that almost nothing exposes the health or the dysfunction of a church family like facing adversity. No matter how much they disagree with each other, when a healthy family, like when it hits challenging times, when they face adversity, when they face an enemy or a difficulty, they band together and they get stronger. Unhealthy ones, they turn on each other and they fall apart. Yes, church as family is hard. It's hard work. Sharing life together is not easy. And the truth is, some brothers and sisters we like. Others, not so much. (laughs) Doc just called out Gabe. Most people in our church don't like Gabe very much. 
just the truth, but we're family. <laughs> Case in point. <laughs> this is why it's hard. Because some people <laughs> touche, touche. Don't mock the sound guy when you're holding a mic, right? <laughs> Lesson learned. <laughs> church has family. What the American church experiences all too often is that people experience difficulty, they experience conflict, and rather than stay and grow up, they withdraw and they leave. You know what happens, though? They take their dysfunctional behaviors, they take their attitude to another church family, and surprise, surprise, these things pop up all over again. And they're wondering, I thought they left this stuff behind at the last bad church. What's the common factor here? It's you, <laughs> right? Wherever we go, we're going to face conflict. We're going to face difficulty. Misunderstandings are a normal part of family life, even healthy ones. But healthy church families resolve conflict. They take responsibility for their screw-ups. They confess sin to each other. They forgive each other quickly. They commit to each other. And I'm not saying here that there's not good reasons to leave a church. There are great reasons to leave a church, in fact. There are. But in my experience, the majority of the time, probably the majority of the time, the great majority of the time, people leave churches. When people leave churches, the problems could have been resolved and the people could have grown up a little bit more. We're just trained in quitting when things get hard, candidly. Healthy families come together when they face challenges. Another one, healthy families joyfully welcome new members. They joyfully welcome new members. They don't build walls to keep newcomers out. Healthy families celebrate the addition of new members to the tribe. Think of births. My, actually, my brother right now and his wife are at the hospital. Um, his wife is in labor right now. So I'm probably going to go from here to the hospital to go to see my new nephew. Well, Connor's being born right now. Yeah, it's awesome, right? This is something we celebrate. Like, we have an addition to our family today. We're going to celebrate that. Or adoptions. Or marriages. These are times when families throw big freaking parties, right? We're excited. We're bringing somebody into the family. The tribe is growing. And the same principle applies to church families. Healthy church families love seeing new people join the tribe. Dysfunctional tribes, they're threatened by new faces because new faces, they're a hazard to my rights, to my privileges, to my comfort, to my power, to my position. In fact, when these type of churches, when they say we're like a family here, what they too often mean is that we're insulated, we're small, and we plan to stay that way. So watch yourself. But we're a family. <laughs> You may have visited churches before where everyone is welcome, but the church family doesn't really treat people like that. Oh, on stage you say you celebrate newcomers, but the only people that seem to care that I'm here is the person with the microphone. Everybody else doesn't really seem to care that much. Or you say you welcome people to your new church, but your faces and the way you talk to me or the way you don't talk to me says, don't come back now, <laughs> right? The greatest churches I visit are the ones where I walk in and I felt like I was home. I visited a few like that. Like, first time in, I walk in, I'm like, wow, I feel like this is my home. I don't even know these people. Those are great churches. Healthy families throw open their doors 
to joyfully welcome new members. Another one, healthy families celebrate the uniqueness of each member. They celebrate the uniqueness of each member. What dysfunctional families do is they pressure everybody to mimic the accepted language and behavior of the family. Especially the power wielders of the family. You got to copy what we do here. Individuals don't feel free to be unique. They feel forced to imitate the group. And healthy families, members know that they are, they are free. They feel freedom to be, to be a person, to be a distinct individual. They don't have to live up to the expectations of anyone in a group. There's space. There's freedom to be and do as each person bees and do's. Even if it's peculiar. In fact, in healthy families, peculiar is celebrated. It's celebrated. Because they know diversity is going to make the whole thing better. That each individual adds value to the group, particularly because they're not like the rest of the group. They celebrate that. And a healthy, ch- family, a healthy church family functions exactly the same way. Now, have you ever been in a church where you felt the pressure to assimilate to that group? If I don't become like this group, I won't belong with this group. If a group uses pressure to build intimacy, they're not as intimate as they think they are. While we have faults here, we have our faults here, lots of them. We aim to be a church where each individual believes they add value to our group. And precisely because they are uniquely different from each other member of this group. And that their uniqueness is not tolerated, but it's celebrated. So a lot of churches were like, we'll tolerate your uniqueness for a little while until you become like us. We want to celebrate your uniqueness. We want to celebrate the diversity that this church has. Healthy families celebrate the uniqueness of each member. And healthy families express affirmation and encouragement often. They express affirmation and encouragement often. My phone is vibrating right now. This is my reminder to talk to Jesus. Love you, Jesus. Healthy families express affirmation and encouragement often. You know, being around cynical, pessimistic people is draining. My gosh, it just sucks the life from you. Dysfunctional families, what they do is they default to criticizing each other because of everyone's insecurities. It's like the norm. It's just the normal language. Let's criticize each other because I'm insecure. That's what they do. And the opposite is also true. Being around joyful, optimistic people is just life-giving. It's like, it just come alive when I'm around these people. Healthy families default to affirming each other despite everybody's insecurities. See, none of us are born with a, like, with a well-defined sense of our own identity, with a well-defined sense of ourselves. We discover our identities, ourselves, over time. And it's largely through the influence of people that we feel are important to us. So we watch what they say, we watch what they do, we watch the, how they speak to us and about us. Great job. I admire you. I appreciate you. You're stronger than you know. I cherish the way you show up in our friendship. Affirmation and encouragement, they help ground us in our identity. They help ground us in who God has created us to be. They call something out of you to come alive. And here's the really important part. It's not enough to feel it. 
It's not enough to feel appreciation. It's not enough to feel love. It's not enough to feel honor. We have to express it. Appreciation unexpressed is not appreciation. Love unexpressed is not love. Honor not expressed is not honor. Healthy families know that affirmation and encouragement are like fuel in the relationships. So they express them freely and they express them frequently. And church families are no different. Affirmation, encouragement, often, verbally, through, through meaningful gestures to each other. Because when it's sincere, expressions of love, expressions of appreciation, they deepen our family roots with each other. So I want to challenge you. Say thank you to someone for what they do here. Say thank you to someone for who they are here. Tell someone how you appreciate how present they are when you talk to them. Write someone a handwritten note encouraging for them, them for the week ahead. As a church, I want to inspire us to elevate others through affirmation, to challenge ourselves to see how many people in this church and beyond that we can build up. Call out each other's strengths. Call out each other's goodness. Call out each other's beauty. Call out each other's belovedness. Let's resolve to be a church family who brings life, causes things to flourish and to grow whatever we touch and wherever we go. I want to bring the worship team back up. We're going to go into a time of response and worship through song. We are a family, but what kind of family do we want to be? God has called us a family. He's already called us his kids. We're already siblings. We don't have to do anything. We're already siblings. Being a family is an absolute. Being a healthy, life-giving family, that's our choice. What kind of family do we want to be? I've been in church my whole life. Pastor's kid, my mom went to labor with me in a small group, in a youth group small group meeting. I've been to church my whole life, and guys, I know it is easy to complain about church life. It's easy to constantly critique each other. It's easy to maintain superficial relationships. It's easy to run from conflict. Pseudo-intimacy is easy, but it sucks. There's nothing compelling about it. Nobody wants to be a part of that type of church. I sure as heck don't want to be a part of that type of church. What kind of church would you love to be a part of? What kind of church family would you love to have? Would you brag about? Be it. Be that church. Be that church family. It's, it's on us. I mean, I know God inspires us. I know God gives us grace to be with each other. But it's so easy to just pass blame. If somebody else would do A, B, and C, maybe we would be a better church. If somebody else would dot, 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 we'd have more intimate relationships. Be the church that you want to be. Because I believe if we can commit to each other as we hold on to Jesus, he's going to accomplish supernatural things through us. Seriously, I think he, I believe he's going to accomplish supernatural things through our church family. If we could just hold on to each other. So God, we come to you again, your kids that you smile upon today. 
We, we believe and we know that your love for us is not based off of how well we perform. It's not based off of how few or how few times we will sin today. God, your love for us is based off of the fact that we are yours, that you have called us your own. So we stand in faith today, Jesus, in your name. And we accept our positions in your family as sons, as daughters, as brothers, as sisters, in your eternal family. And we pray for strength today, God, to love each other well, to be intimate with each other, to be vulnerable with each other, to be authentic with each other, that we can show up as we are and love each other as we are, just as you do with us, God. So we respond to you now in this time of worship, God. We give you our hearts again. We pray as Jesus did. Make us one as you are one, God. Make us one. Unite our hearts, O oh Lord. We ask this in faith in your name, God.